Um, when I started to pull this talk together a few weeks ago, there was some news that was hovering around from the beginning of August, but which still seemed to be loitering. And it involved a chap who lives over in Hove, who had come home one day to find one of the little blue cards that delivery companies leave for you when they've tried to deliver something, but you're not there. And this little blue card from the delivery company said, you know, hello, hi, hi. Um, we came round, we've got a parcel for you, uh, you weren't here, so we've left it with you on your roof. Sorry. And there was an exclamation mark after the sorry, because they were very, very sorry that they'd thrown it onto the roof. Um, he tweeted this, and it, it kind of it got its own momentum. It, got, it carried its own... I, I think it, it carried kind of a recognition that came with it from a lot of people who had found, you know, buying a lot of stuff online was very, very easy, but there had been just this constant wave of deliveries of the parcels themselves coming in, being left, in the worst-case scenario, on a roof, possibly in a bin somewhere, under a hedge somewhere, um, maybe um, in a tree. Lots of just these very apologetic little cards that came through that was like, yeah, sorry, 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 but we've just given it to the cat to take care of, but that's fine, yeah, it's good, it's good. And this kind of, when I was pulling this together, it was something that kept itching at me, um, that this was the point of friction in the system that was being experienced, that for all the kind of massive amounts of delivery that go on each day, this, was, this final endpoint was the point of upset. And it felt, it felt odd that given the rest of the strain of the network, that was the final thing where one little blue card or one little red card caused so much misery. Um, if you've ordered something online, chances are it has not been made here. Chances are it's been made, or at least part of it has been made somewhere else. Chances are that it's been shipped um, through maritime traffic. 90% of the world's trade comes through the ocean. Chances are it's been in one of the five to six million shipping containers that's on the sea at any one time. Chances are it's come out of a port very, very far away, probably Shenzhen or Hong Kong or Singapore or Shanghai, one of the world's major ports. And chances are it's, kind of, it's made its way across the ocean very bravely, you know, having run the risk of you know, a container falling overboard or being hit by something else or something else terrible happening. And you know, to say nothing of the labour and material conditions that have actually gone into producing this thing. And then it gets, to the, it gets here, it gets to the UK, and then it hits the networks here. Then it hits the rail networks, it hits the 2.3 thousand miles of motorways that we have here, it hits the lorries, it hits the massive logistics and uh, supply chain infrastructure of 24-7 delivery through all, you know, every day of the year. So this, co this constant kind of amazing journey that these things come through. And then at the very end of this, at the very, very, very end of this long journey where this thing has been assembled and made and brought forward, it has the indignity of being thrown onto a roof somewhere. And that, yeah. Um, and that was curious. I mean, there was um, a chap, a professor of supply chains and logistics um, at Cranfield University who said that even, even he, as an expert of these things, had come home one day to get one of the, one of the little cards that were like, hi, yeah, um, we've left your parcel in your hedge. And he was like, I don't have a hedge. So he spent the rest of the day walking up and down the street trying to find a hedge, any hedge, and eventually he found the right hedge. So that was fine. So this is kind of a story about the frictions in the network, the things where, where things move in odd ways, where we only kind of experience stuff at that, that point where it kind of rubs up against us, where there is that abrasion. But there's a lot of weird and strange dynamics and networks that are kind of spreading through the way that technologies emerge and travel and the information around them spreads as well. We're still staying in history. 
Uh, we're not going any further than 1975 because there's an awful lot of stuff that's very, very interesting before that. So 1975 really is where we stop and we're going much, much earlier than that as well. Um, we're also going to be looking at the technologies primarily around sexual health care and also a few military technologies as well. And that's, I mean, it, it feels like slightly a little bit of a cheap gag, you know, let's talk about the sex and violence and technologies. But because, it's exactly because there is this kind of cultural worry and reactions to technologies around sexual health and technologies around the military that make them behave in really, really interesting ways. Anything around sexual health will automatically start embodying things around the body itself, around huge amounts of regulation of medical devices, about lots and lots of concerns about morality as well and ethics and, you know, culture gone wild. And military technologies themselves, again, can be violent, can be lethal, can be very, very well supported, very, very well regulated, very, very patriotic, very political. So the fact that they, there is a reaction around sexual health and military technologies means that those technologies themselves do very unusual things in the way that they behave and the way that they come through things and the kind of the frictions that they experience as they march down their path. So we're going to start with something ridiculous. Um, we're starting in 1965, when a couple, George and Charlotte Blonsky, took, who live in New York, took a trip out to the Bronx Zoo one day. And whilst they were there, they saw an elephant uh, who was, appeared to be quite large and in some distress that was kind of walking around in circles, kind of spinning gently. And they, you know, they looked at the elephant, they hadn't seen this before, and they asked the zookeeper what was going on. And the zookeeper said, well, that's, that's, that's a female elephant, and she's pregnant, and she's probably going to give birth soon. So the reason she's, spin, you know, she's walking around in circles and spinning is just a kind of a way to kind of ease things, to make things a little easier for her when she gives birth. And they were like, oh, right. And he's like, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, that's what it is. He was wrong. That wasn't, I mean, the, the elephant was pregnant, but that wasn't what was really going on. But they didn't know that. And um, because they were very well-meaning people and they were kind and they wanted to help and they had a wonderful idea, um, they went home and they designed something and they patented it. This is the Blonsky device, as it's known now. Um, the official title for it is on its patent, is an apparatus for facilitating the birth of a child by centrifugal force. <laughs> I am not kidding here. So this is the actual, some of the, some of the, the illustrations I'll show you are merely illustrative, but this is the actual patent illustration for the Blonsky device. So what you can see is you've got basically a very, you know, a large bed that um, a woman who's about to give birth lies onto. Um, you can see all the numbers that kind of lie up around the top and at the bottom, and that's straps that go all the way down. Because once the bed once is, um, she's in it, you can probably see broadly by the gear structure, it's kind of elevated slightly at an angle. You've got a rotatory device underneath it. So as well as the medical team, the midwife or the doula, you also have an operator. And the operator, at the point where labour begins to start, um, helps to spin the device round at a gentle, evenly distributed, properly directed, precision-controlled force that acts in unison with and supplements the mother's own efforts um, as a way which will cause less stress to the mother. The Dublin Science Gallery made one of these for an exhibition that they, um, they did last year on scientific failures, which is basically what this is. This is kind of reproductive vaporware. This never got to market for fairly good reasons. Um, 
the Dublin Science Gallery when they made this, and it's, it's, it's a kind of a terrifying device to look at because it's kind of, it's partly something you would find in a sexual health clinic. You've got stirrups and everything else, but it, well, it rotates, it rotates. Um, so they, they kind of talked a little bit about why it failed. And they said, well, firstly, you know, it failed because it's really expensive and it's big. You know, this is a big thing. Um, any kind of surgery would have to outlay a lot of money. You need to actually hire an operator or train someone else who's in the surgery to come and do this as well as every other job. Um, they said that the methods stand outside most traditional birthing conditions, which they do. Uh, you can have, can have things like water birth or not, and then you have you know, centrifugal force. Um, what, they also, what they also said was, um, uh, the final point of failure was that the tiny net designed to catch the child may be inadequate to the task. <laughs> Uh, so that this never got anywhere, and that's fine that it never got anywhere. I mean, what's interesting about it, beyond the, its, its point of abject failure, um, is it carries influence as a patent, influence, interestingly. It's been cited 14 times, I think maybe more than that, since it was actually filed in 65, one of which was filed earlier this year by NASA for making a human-powered centrifuge. So think about that one. So this, this never went anywhere because it shouldn't have gone anywhere. It's something that is, was an idea and not a brilliant one at the time. But there's also ideas that don't travel. Um, there are ideas that are actually really good and really useful, and kind of within the system that they operate in, they simply can't go anywhere, or they're held in place. So a few centuries before the Blonskys were around and uh, making their own devices, um, forceps were being developed in the 17th century, again, for, for, for childbirth. Um, and these were brilliant, actually. This came at a point where there was an increasing level of infection in childbirth, and forceps, um, to assist with the birth of the child, were fantastic, incredibly necessary, um, and very you know, critical advance in medical science around birth. Now, as much as the Blonsky device was a failure, forceps were their own form of, you know, the opposite in almost every way. The Blonskys had no idea about this. They were developing based on an elephant, stories about an elephant that weren't true, whereas the people who invented the forceps were, came from five generations of what we'd now call obstetrician doctors. They were doctors and midwives at the same time. Um, the men who, who developed the uh, forceps were Peter and Peter Chamberlain, Peter Elder and Peter Younger. Um, no one quite knows which Peter of the two brothers developed it, but with the, the same name, it, it doesn't necessarily matter too much. And they developed it through the, kind of the family knowledge of working very closely and very carefully, not only with, um, with the families where women were giving birth, but also with the wider midwife community as well. So there was a lot of embodied and local knowledge that went into this too. A really bloody good idea. However, at the time that they were working, if you were going to be practicing medicine in this way, you were probably going to be working to some extent with quite rich families, and you wanted to be able to keep, you know, to keep good word up that you were a doctor to work with, and because childbirth, unlike other forms of medicine, is not something that happens particularly frequently, you want the word to get around so that you can be passed from family to family um, on a good word to so, say, you know, you should work with these people. And so the forceps were one, one of the things they had as a way of differentiating themselves so that people would hire the Chamberlain brothers. But they didn't want anyone to know about it. So if you were a family who decided that you wanted the Chamberlains to be there when the lady of the house was giving birth, the two men would roll up in a large horse-drawn carriage um, and they would get out and they would carry with them a very, very large wooden trunk very large. It was a beautiful thing, covered in gilding and engravings, and they would both carry it into the house and carry it in such a way to give the impression that what was inside was a very heavy and very complicated piece of machinery. Now, forceps aren't big. Forceps are, you know, yeah, big probably about, but this was a massive thing that they would very carefully carry in. And they would go to the lying-in room where the woman would be waiting, 
And they would usher every single member of the family out of the room apart from her. And they would close the door. No one else was allowed in. Um, and the family would listen through the door. They had no idea what was going on. And there would be the sounds of childbirth, which can be distressing, if, particularly if, you don't, if it's not something you've heard before and it's not something you're familiar with. Um, but there would be other sounds as well. There would be the sounds of bells and ringing and strange things going on too. All of this is this kind of this obstruction about what was really happening. And to make sure that it was really kept secret, the woman who was giving birth would be blindfolded by the chamberlains. Because God knows when you're thinking about industrial espionage and um, the theft of intellectual property right, a woman giving birth is kind of high up on your list of who might be doing that. So they, 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 they did this. And they, you know, they, got, they were very well known for the secret, as it was called, um, and, and didn't tell anyone about it. Um, the midwife community had heard rumour of this and didn't really want anything to do with, with the Chamberlain brothers, even though they were fighting for the mid, uh, midwifery rights at the same time. But the midwives said, you know, the, the Chamberlains will deliver none without use with, uh, of, of instruments by extraordinary violence in desperate occasion. They had no idea what was going on either. They just knew that, you know, they would go into a locked room, there would be the most astonishing cacophony of noise, and then there'd be a baby. And who knows? So eventually the secret leaked, leaked out after um, one of the later generations of Chamberlains fell, you know, fell in hard times and wanted to try and sell it on. But by that stage, other um, doctors had already developed their own version of forceps and actually started to publish around it and started to get that information out into the world as well. So the publishing part for this is quite critical, but the publishing part for other kind of technologies doesn't always spread so very easily either. Um, when I was pulling the slides together, I kind of showed this transition to a friend, and he was like, Jesus Christ, is that for, like, giving birth as well? And I was like, no, 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 it's for, it's for nerve gas. That's fine, that's fine. <laughs> so this is for nerve gas, um, and this is a, a very, um, like the Chamberlain's, this is a very British technology itself. Um, it was developed in the 1960s, during the Cold War, and as a result of close collaboration between the British government's chemical research unit over at Port and Down and the chemicals industry. So the nerve gas we're talking about here is VX. Um, this is one of the most lethal forms of, of, of toxin, of nerve gas. A kind of a small drop in of it on the skin, about 10 milligrams, will kill someone within minutes. It's particularly nasty. Um, and the work around how this was revealed um, was done through uh, Brian Barmer at University College London, who talks about the secrecy that surrounded VX when it was being developed by the government. It was originally patented in 1964, but was classified, so the patent itself was not released. In 1974, the government thought, well, this is, we've gone beyond the stage where we might be working with nerve gas in a military setting, so it's probably safe to release the patent, and we're going to do that. And so they released the patent for VX. In 1975, the Sunday Times, in January of that year, published a very sensational article to say that the patent for this deadly chemical had been released with the title of Terror Risk as Deadly Nerve Gas Secrets Are Revealed. And they said that now anyone can go to the patent office in London and with minimum research find the specification number and be shown minute details of how to make it. And they hypothesised there might be some chemistry students somewhere who could simply go and find these foolscap papers that bore the royal coat of arms and that they would go and make nerve gas. So there was a big furore about this. The questions were raised um, in government. There were briefings written. And very, very swiftly, the patent office said, oh, God, no, actually, OK, this this not be a bit of a problem. And they physically removed the six pages of the patent from the patent office so it wasn't there anymore. 
So that's kind of the, I kind of, I, I find that interesting, but the way that it was reported, the actual information around nerve gas itself was more peculiar. This is not actually the patent for VX itself, but it's one um, of a very similar style in how it was presented. And as you can see, it's a kind of, it's a wall of text and you've got some chemical details as well. So the Sunday Times, the journalists who are writing for this, hypothesized that, again, anyone could go and find this patent and they would be able to pull it down and they would be able to make nerve gas. So this, this carried in it the information that would be this very, very dangerous information. At the same time, they kind of they pointed out that it hadn't actually been labeled as nerve gas or as VX or as a toxin. What the title of the patent was was simply Improvements in the Manufacture of Organic Phosphorus Compounds Containing Sulfur, which they called, this is a bit of a military understatement, um, that when you mix it with a suitable carrier, it might be used as an insecticidal compound. This was kind of not half the truth, but this was a curious representation of what they were actually talking about. And the members of the patent office, patent clerks and patent agents, were incredibly angry about the style of reporting of the nerve gas itself. And what they pointed out was, firstly, okay, the Sunday Times did not produce, it did not actually show the patent number itself. But in the photograph that came with this article, they showed the application number. And if you've got the application number and you know how the patent system works, you can go and find the patent itself. They said that they, the journalists had become confused about the difference between the, you know, the details of the formula of VX and the process for how you would make it. They were conflating the two, that these are different forms of information and you need different forms of contextual knowledge to make sense of it. This, you know, even, uh, the hypothetical chemistry student would probably not be able to get far with this. Finally, um, they pointed out that without the indiscretion of the Times, amateurs would not be able to find it. Because it had this very neutral name, because it said nothing about its applications in a military setting, you would have to know that this was what it was in order to find it, in order to make sense of it. And that was exactly what the Sunday Times had done. Um, and there was fantastically snippy letters that were written by patent agents um, who accused the Sunday Times of deeply irresponsible journalism and said, what is dangerous is when the half-informed tell the half-witted how and where to find much information on the front pages of popular papers. So this wasn't just the kind of, that there was information. It required this contextual use on both sides, that both people were moving, that both parties were moving in towards it. And what the Sunday Times had actually done by kind of flagging this was making it very obvious where it was and what this thing was. And, you know, it might otherwise have been led undetected. What's also interesting about this is we're talking here about physical harms as much as anything else. This is a toxin. This is something that has potentially lethal effects as well. And in the histories of technology, the moral dangers around technologies themselves often kind of get wrapped into these things. So there was a lot of kind of moral worry about VX. It was a lot of kind of allusions to terrorists, the, the chemistry student who might be tied up and kind of get over-politicized and over-excited. But it was ultimately, it kind of, it boils down to these physical harms that would come out of finding and making VX itself. In America, during the 1870s, the moral harms of technology were a bit more of a worry. So if we go back a little bit, just after forceps come into use, this is about the time as well that the medical profession and other professions as well are beginning to emerge. You're getting learned societies, you're getting professionalization. And a lot of the kind of the local and grassroots remedies, the kind of more informal personal hyperlocal sources are being stepped away from in favour of working with professional doctors, of working with pharmacists. 
one of the things that was coming out in this time was contraception. This was something that started to come into popular use for widespread manufacturer, and thus was advertised as well. And in New York in the 1860s, um, a man called Anthony Comstock started to get a little worried about this. Now, he would probably be, will be described now as a social campaigner, a social activist. At the time, he was someone who had kind of, he'd been to various kind of um, aftermaths of battles and wars and had seen a lot of soldiers, a lot of young men wandering around, um, sometimes not particularly well. He'd seen a lot of adverts in places for contraception. And he'd come to the conclusion that it was the information about the contraception that was the point of difference and the point of danger, that having information about contraception, about condoms available in popular papers, on kind of, um, in advertisements, um, in surgeries, was something that gave young men, in particular, a license to be lewd and promiscuous. If this information wasn't there, they wouldn't be tempted, but because it was there, they would be somehow kind of drawn into this, 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 this lifestyle of vice. So he, he kind of, he worked in kind of grassroots levels for a while. He was involved in setting up the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, which has this fantastic logo that's a circle, and on one side, you've got a man being taken away and arrested, and on the other side, you've got a man burning books. So it's kind of, you know, the best of both worlds as far as that goes. Um, he, was support, he was supported and supported by the Young Men's Christian Association, the YMCA. He had a lot of very, very wealthy supporters, as is the kind of thing that one might often need if one is trying to push a bill, a bill through government. So eventually, in 1873, he pushed through the Comstock, what was known as the Comstock Act, and this was his way of trying to limit the diffusion and the spread of both the information and the technologies around sex and sexuality, essentially. And this was, this was kind of a really, really broad church in terms of what he was trying to limit the sales of. So the act itself prevented um, the sales of what was determined as obscene literature and articles of immoral use over state borders, but also through using the US Royal, the Postal Service itself. So if any, you know, there's kind of the echoes here of using the infrastructure of, a, of the post itself to be able to limit how these things themselves will spread. And the Postal Service had the option of whether they would want to kind of hunt down and prosecute you know, uh, people who were trying to send things over borders. Comstock himself was delighted. He had a brilliant time going down and hunting down various people who were trying to um, send these various obscene and immoral things um, through the post itself to the extent that he, the post office was like, this is brilliant, you're doing really well. And they made him the title of US Postal Inspector, which was very nice for him. So he had, he had this role of trying to control what was being sent and defined as obscene, but this was a really broad church in terms of what it actually was. Um, so included materials or the actual um, information about things like contraception, things like abortion, but also health and education and pleasure and all the other kind of things that fall very broadly under the space of sexuality. Like this, this, this incredibly broad spread of things, but anything which he specifically defined to be obscene. Now, obscenity law is really peculiar. Um, it, I mean, it's, been, it's evolved over the past century, and particularly in the US, you've had some really kind of interesting cases in um, the UK. It's, it's, it's complicated and messy, but a lot of it boils down to a very subjective interpretation of what is obscene and who, critically, who gets to decide that and who gets to enforce that. In the United States at the time, there wasn't actually any specific obscenity law. There was only common law, which meant it was, very, again, even more subjective based on who might be doing the levels of prosecution, which in that case was often run through Comstock himself. 
And in this definition, obscenity was anything that depraved and corrupted those whose minds were open to such immoral influences, which is kind of anything, really, at that point, because what, what, yeah, what does it mean to be depraved? What does it mean to be corrupted? And what does it mean to be immoral? These are very, very loose and subjective terms. So when the act rolled into play, and it was, it, was in, it was in place for a very, very long time, it had these incredibly weird and potentially dangerous knock-on effects in terms of how technology spread and who could get access to information. So for a while, um, medical students couldn't get anatomy textbooks because they were obscene, so you wouldn't send them through the post. Um, when World War I came around, the American soldiers who went off to fight were the only part of the Allied forces who were sent without condoms. Every other member of the Allied troops you know, were given contraception by their government, but the American soldiers went off and came back with approximately a 70% infection rate of STDs as a result of this. And this is, you know, this is not just you know, the, the soldiers themselves not being protected, but the impact of this bit of regulation that then allows these men to act to an extent as disease vectors for the men and women that they sleep with and the men and women that they sleep with. So this is kind of this spread out globally from this one piece of legislation that limits where contraception can be sold within the United States. And there were big kind of social and political aspects of this as well. Comstock himself, again, had been very heavily supported by very, very wealthy patrons. And these very wealthy patrons often had either private collections of art or they, were, you know, they, they owned or supported fine art galleries themselves. And a lot of the art in these places was what you know, included paintings or depictions of nude people. And so this was, this was kind of problematic in terms of trying to differentiate where the line was between something that was obscene and something that wasn't. And Comstock eventually was forced into a corner where he had to say, well, okay, so if it's in a gallery or a private collection, then it's art. And if it's a reproduction and it's being sold or passed on to the general public, then it's obscene. And that's the dividing line. And that's who gets to look at this stuff. So it's le again, it's less about what this actually is and more about who has the expertise, who has the qualifications to be able to receive dangerous information in this way. It was also incredibly unevenly applied as a law. The places which had strong vice societies like New York and Boston tended to crack down on this stuff very, very heavily. Places like Philadelphia, which didn't, it was fine, it was okay. So even across the US, while these laws start to come into play, you get these incredibly uneven ripples about how these technologies and how this information diffuses across different spaces by these different regulatory powers. When you start to put limits on where things can be sent to and what you can access and what's legal and what's possibly not legal and what's available and what's hidden, then it's not only the access to those things which start to bend, but the networks around them start to kind of shift in very peculiar ways too, to try and get access to resources. There were two sociologists who kind of looked at this phenomenon, um, particularly around the idea of hidden information or difficult to access information. And their work basically laid the groundwork for what we'd call social network theory. There's any analysis now around social networks come from these two people. Mark Ranavetta looked at how people find jobs. A lot of jobs aren't advertised. A lot of jobs you might not see. Even if there is an advert, you might want someone to translate it. And he said, well, how, how do people find jobs? Like, where, where does this information come from? And the answer comes from not necessarily going through the people you know, but looking for the people that you don't know terribly well to get the unusual sources of information in. You start to kind of bridge over into weak ties. You start to move into places that you might not otherwise go. 
Nancy Howell-Lee kind of asked the same question, but she asked it about women trying to access sexual health services that might not be illegal in the place that they were. So not just buying something through the post, but actually having to find a doctor themselves. And this would be a doctor who didn't advertise. This would be a doctor who didn't have a clinic, but would have to move around from hotel room to hotel room because they weren't able to practice in, in, a, more, in a more legitimate way. And her results were very, very similar. Women who were looking for this thing wouldn't go through people that they know. They wouldn't go through authorities, and they wouldn't go through family members they would go through these weaker links of about five steps to try and find these doctors, but at a distance. And again, this wasn't just about finding unusual information. It was trying to cover your tracks as you did so, so that you could kind of shift around the network and try and get to these illicit spaces and then shift back again without anyone knowing, but still having got there at the same time. And so these kind of these peculiar routes start to get set up if you're trying to, if something is there, but can't be easily legally or socially accessed itself. And the technologies themselves start to get weird as well. It's not just the routes that you start to get them on that change, but the, the way that the technologies are presented start to shift too. Rachel Maines is a historian who works on the history of technologies, and she's come up with this, this idea of socially camouflaged technologies. And these are things where if you need to access them, but they're not legally available or it's not culturally acceptable to buy them, but you still want to access them, then the people who are selling them will start to codify and conceal and camouflage what their true purpose is in a way which allows people to buy them, which allows them to be sold, and which allows some kind of heavy sale on them, but not in a way that it's completely something that people can stand away from. One of the examples she gives is, again, in America, in the Prohibition area, um, it was... These kind of large, very large copper stills would be sold in magazines, still the kind of thing that you would use for distilling hard liquor, but they would never be advertised as such. The ads would kind of come out with descriptions such as, you know, this, this thing here is ideal for distilling water for drinking purposes, automobile batteries, and industrial uses. And so there'd be this kind of directing the attention away from what this thing is that you're actually, the actual true purpose of it, but with a kind of a nudge and a wink to say, but you know, and I know, but we both have to know, we both have to kind of converge on this thing and understand so that when you get this home, you know, you're not necessarily going to use it for um, just distilling water itself. There's kind of a common understanding of the, of the product itself. Uh, she points as well to home security systems that get sold with incredible amounts of detail and incredible kind of contextual information about how they might be set up in a home and where the weak spots, upon, weak spots of entry are in a home with the point that either this is being sold to people who are really keen on home security or incredibly paranoid or it's being sold to burglars. And that's this kind of this convergent point that these two things come through themselves. So kind of the language around technology changes as they get into harder places to reach, but the actual meaning of the technology changes as well. After the First World War, when the soldiers came back horribly infected with STIs, um, there was a kind of a general consensus that contraception, that condoms needed to be sold, that you need, you know, they needed to be sold as a way to at least try and kind of mitigate some of these medical effects themselves. Um, but because it was, um, they couldn't be sold particularly for anything that would be described as obscene, they had to be reframed in the actual identity of the technology itself. And so they became framed as disease reduction products. So all the language around the sale of condoms at this time starts to rapidly change, and it moves from being something around sexuality, around pleasure, and about conception, to being something that's around protection and security and safety. 
And that's okay, and that's fine. And there were various people who were arrested during this time and said, you know, you're producing obscene materials. And they were like, no, 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 it's not, it's not about that. It's not about fun. It's about safety. It's about making sure that, you know, it's not about the corruption of the soul. It's about preventing the corruption of the body. That's okay. And so this, kind of, this language kind of starts to shift quite rapidly to get to a point where the technology itself has now kind of concealed itself in this shiny coating of respectability. The thing itself is still the same, and it carries a dual use and it can move, but it can move through the world now, and it can move through the network in a way that's, kind of, that's cleaner and easier and acceptable by the standards that have been set up by the network itself. Comstock was later repealed in the 30s, and at that stage, the government were like, right, right, fine, fine, and huge amounts of advertising came out, and when World War II came around, the troops were sent off, lots of ads saying, you know, just be careful, be careful about what you're doing. But until that point, the condoms that were being sold themselves were kind of being held up as, this is a device of safety and protection and security, because God knows it's not about fun, it's just about keeping you from being, it's about keeping you safe. That's what matters here. The meaning changes. One of the things when I was pulling together this talk that people, a number of people actually kept pointing me at was the quote from John Gilmore about the net interprets censorship as damage and roots around it. And I don't know, it, kind of, it felt that this was, it's, again, it was something that the more I thought about it and the more that I was pulling together this, it felt that this was kind of a slightly odd and itchy space to start working in. Um, there is rooting, certainly. There's this kind of idea of you know, technologies as these little hovercrafts that kind of bounce through the water that don't experience necessarily that much friction in their movements. But the networks that they move in, the regulatory networks and the social networks and the cultural networks and the moral networks and the economic networks, do have their own kind of physical material qualities, these kind of haptic forces that bend on them. Um, when the networks themselves start to root and to bend, they can leave creases in what they do. When they start to shift, they can leave abrasions and rub marks about, you know, on what subjects are in the network themselves that living in the network itself is not necessarily about this clean, friction-free experience, but understanding where the friction points are and understanding how they rub up against various social and cultural and regulatory meanings that come through these things as well. This is not a clean ride. There are bigger forces at play that shift and change how these technologies start to shift and move through the world themselves. That the hovercraft itself doesn't always move so very easily, but kind of gets tethered in place and held by these forces in the network itself. Um, and I think I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. <laughs>